Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. And welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligaris for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, right? We're going to have someone on, I think, throughout my career, I've worked at a lot of small companies. I've worked at some startups. You know, I have some experience, but I think it's really interesting when we talk to practitioners who have a wide set of experience, right? And we're going to talk to today someone who's worked at stealth startups, worked at large companies, companies at all stages and sizes. They've been in education, health, consumer e-commerce, like a big gamut. And I think it'd be really interesting to kind of just talk about some of the differences he's seen, a lot of the similarities he's seen and some lessons along the way. So today I'm very, very excited to welcome David Lifson. Welcome, David. Hey, it's nice to be here. Excellent. All right. I just, I, you know, I told a little bit, I gave hints about your background, but I always like to start with sort of like everyone's origin story. Like if product is your superhero power, how did you get here and why are you so passionate about it? Yeah. So gosh, back in like eighth grade, my parents sent me to computer camp because I was always tinkering on the computer. This was in the, I guess, early nineties, mid nineties. And so my parents sent me to this computer camp where I learned had a program, first basic, then C++, and then Java. And I loved it. And so I went back every summer of high school. And after I finished all of the coursework, they then brought me back as sort of like a counselor in training. I was still in high school, so they couldn't hire me officially as a counselor. But I just loved teaching young kids how to program. And I just got this idea in my head. And maybe because it was the late 90s, that was just dot-com boom or whatnot. But I was going to be a programmer. And so I went to school for computer science bachelor's and master's, and got a job at Amazon in Seattle in 2006, and found out probably within the first year that all the parts of the job that I actually liked were things that product managers did. Mm. Just didn't love fixing my own bugs and all of the sort of (laughs) nitty gritty of being an engineer. I don't know. It it works for some people, but for me. And so the floor that I was on in the Amazon headquarters building was on one side, the community team, which I was part of. So community is user-generated content, like customer reviews, wish list, lists and guides. And then on the, the right side of the floor was personalization. So it's like customers who bought this also bought. And because you bought these things, we recommend these others and top sellers, whatnot. And I had started a brown bag, sort of like free to any employee who wanted to join Tuesday lunch session where I would share e-commerce related startups that I would read about on TechCrunch with the team. That just sounded kind of interesting. And it grew and grew and grew. And then when I realized that I no longer wanted to be an engineer, there was an opening to be a product manager on the Amazon recommendations team. And so they knew me through the brown bag. I interviewed, they took a chance on me. I was 24, (laughs) you know, and I had like 15 months of like professional experience. They gave me a shot and... And I just loved it. It was really fun. So I guess 
that was my first taste. And then since then, I ended up just kind of jumping into different things just by saying yes to different opportunities without maybe thinking too hard about why I wasn't qualified for them. Privileges of growing up, I guess, a man, I don't know. So uh, we, we like are stupid about this. But anyway, so Etsy was one of the cool startups that I saw through TechCrunch. And I was like, oh, tech-based e-commerce. I've never seen that before. And so I ended up applying to work at like a cold, I sent a cold email to work at Etsy.com. I was like, oh, you should hire me to do this. And they, the founder saw it and said, oh, he's from Amazon. Yeah, we could use something like that. And when I got there, I realized that they had no product management function whatsoever. Mm. They had a couple project managers who had been hired to do completely unrelated things. And then when they'd finished those tasks, they're like, well, why don't you just go to product? And so I changed my pitch in the second day of my interview on site. And I said, well, why don't you hire me to run the team? Mm. And again, I was, so this was now 2008. So I was 25 and had nine months of actual product management experience. And I was like, I don't know what made me think I should do this, but I did. And they were just as naive and said, yes. <laughs> um, and so anyway, so that was my first like head of product gig. And I've been sort of doing that ever since. I love that. I love that story. I love the the confidence to learn on the job. And also, I mean, I'd say almost half our audience comes from an engineering background, right? They start yeah. in engineering and then for many different reasons, move into product, which is of course where I think all the fun is, but I am hundred percent completely biased. <laughs> so it's interesting too, because you've worked then at someone like Amazon who had a product function that you were able to move into. And then someone at Etsy who didn't, and probably didn't really have a big sense of what product could or should be. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's the only time you've been in a role where it's like, okay, I kind of need to help this organization understand what product is. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you've done that. And we've all done it successfully and unsuccessfully. All those stories are welcome. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I think it's important to do a little bit of a reminder that before Marty Kagan and Silicon Valley mm, product sure. group, like what product meant was kind of different. And so I'm sure your listeners are very familiar, but sort of the concept of like outcomes versus outputs. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, and I was a little bit late to the game, call it circa 2017 was when I joined The Knot and really learned about this. But prior to that, I did see my job as working with design and engineering to invent the best version of someone's idea. Mm. And that idea might've been my idea, might've been the CEO's idea or sales or whoever it is, but like it was all just around like, what's the thing we're gonna launch? And then all of the organizational pressure was about velocity. Mm. And why, why didn't we launch when we said we would? It's two sprints late, all this kind of stuff. It's very execution uh, oriented. Very execution oriented and just build the best version of the feature. And there was basically no concept of product strategy mm. at that point, at least within startups or the startups I worked at. and. And in some ways, like, you know, that's an important phase for, I think, every product person's career is just execution and getting good at building stuff. And we certainly would fold in things like user research. We started to do I mean, user-centered design, like wasn't really like as much of a thing in like 2012, 2014, yeah, yeah. but it was like kind of getting there. So most of it was just build, build, build and build the best thing. So yeah, is there any particular part of sort of maybe my startup phase of 2008 to 2016 that you'd want to dig into? Well, I think it's interesting, as you said, then that you've kind of, you were very execution oriented and it wasn't mm -hmm. until later. And I think you, uh, from talking to you previously, you, you had a mentor that kind of helped you mm -hmm. maybe reposition a little bit how you thought of product. And I think you're right though. Like we can't pretend the execution part's not important. 
right? Like a strategy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if there's no product at the end of the day. That part is really important. But let's focus instead on sort of when you started to think about outcomes instead of outputs. And you started to that, that sort of phase where you, the view of how you define product grew. Yeah. So just to catch folks up a little bit. So I did Etsy in 2008, like six weeks after I joined, a COO was hired who quickly convinced the board to sack the founders, make herself CEO. And then she looked at the executive team, saw us as the 25 and 26 year olds that we were and said, okay, I need to clean house and bring in like professional leaders. And so I was only at Etsy for six months. I then spent three years doing a startup of my own, co-founded a startup with the two engineering founders of Etsy. We raised some angel funding. We sold the company. There's a whole story there if, if we want to get into it. And then I did three startups after that before getting to the company that you have in mind. So I did general assembly for two and a half years. I was employed 25 saw that grow to 350. They ended up getting acquired, I don't know, maybe five years ago for like 415 million. And then an e-commerce office supplies, office furniture company called Poppin. And then a, a marketplace for hiring an interior designer called Home Polish, which was the only experience I've had in my career where a company lost product market fit. So that's kind of an interesting story. Yeah. And then after struggling personally with my time at those three. So I'd say General Assembly was pretty successful, but then the company outgrew me. Mm -hmm. I didn't scale when the company needed to scale. I think I was just too early in my career to realize kind of how being head of product design and engineering at a hundred person company is no longer the same person as a 350. Yep. And then with Poppin and Home Polish, again, I also just, I think that I was learning through doing, but mostly mm -hmm. learning through failing. And I was like, okay, I need to find someone that I can report to who's better at product than I am. I found that in Brent Turetsky. Brent's now SVP of product at Peloton, but at the time he was SVP of product at the company that was XO Group that owns The Knot. And I credit him with really teaching me so much about that outcomes uh, versus output mentality. And also just having a sense for really all the different moments when we can try to take a hypothesis-based mindset to the product that we're trying to build or the ideas that we have or the strategy that we have, and then all the different ways in which qualitative and quantitative sort of like user research or design prototyping or whatever it might be can be put in play. That was a big change. And for once, I finally got to, oh yeah, Teresa Torres and sort of her whole like opportunity mm -hmm. solutions trees thing was another big like, oh yeah, got it. We're here to solve problems and maybe this is a good idea, but there might be five other good ideas as well. Yeah. Let's think more strategically. Before we go forward, though, you've teased like two interesting sounding stories that if I don't ask you about, everyone's going to be like, what the heck, Rebecca? Were you not listening? OK, one <laughs> was let's go to the we'll do this in backwards chronological order just to be sure. confusing for people. But the the company that lost product market fit. Tell me yeah. more about that, because that's just like, well, that's everyone's worst nightmare. But, you know, uh -huh. it has happened. So talk to me about that one. Yeah. So, okay. So Home Polish was founded by a Stanford grad who was an interior designer by training. And interior design agencies were sort of the only game in town that came to interior design, which meant it was very expensive. And so it's for like high-end clients who are willing to spend, you know, probably between $50,000 and $250,000 to upgrade their, their home. And he saw an opportunity to bring the same type of experience at a lower price point by creating a marketplace that connected people who wanted interior design services with interior designers who are earlier in their career and willing to work for maybe $100 an hour 
and that could be affordable. And so he comes to market with this and, and it really works. It starts mm. to take off because there are plenty of people who they moved into a new apartment, you know, and they want, they're willing to spend $10,000 to make it look nice, you know, maybe upwards of like $30,000, $40,000, but no agency that is otherwise working with $200,000 budget right. clients really would ever even take them on. And so that's about the time when I joined. And what was interesting was right around that same time, there were new upstarts that came into the market. Havenly is probably the one who's still around that's most successful. And let me back up. So what we would do is we would match you with a designer. That designer would come into your home, sit down with you and give you the same white glove experience you would get with a high-end agency. Hmm. They would shop for you, send you some things. Eventually they'd come to your house, they'd stage everything, you know, and so you'd have that like HGTV moment yes. when they left. Havenly would send you a Pinterest board and hmm. a floor plan. And you got, I think, two video calls. The one where they give you the floor plan and the Pinterest board the first time, and then the second for a single round of revisions, and that's it. Hmm. And the total cost is like $150. Hmm. And that just ate out the entire sort of like base of the market mm. for us because mm. most people already had their eye on something from West Elm that they really liked and they were just nervous about like, would it really work in my room? Mm -hmm. And it was more about like getting the sort of psychological comfort of yep. a professional saying, yeah, yeah, no, it'll work. Don't worry about it. Rather than I really have no idea what to do and, and want to do it, if that's interesting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think people were a lot more price conscious. Our customers were more price conscious than I think we realized. Mm -hmm. And so as this was happening, went back to the founder. We're like, hey, like, you know, what do we want to do about this? And he, as a interior designer by training, he was like, the company I want to run is a company that delivers you that HGTV mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And so that's a choice he got to make. Right. right. I don't know if he thought about it in terms of strategy. He probably thought of it more in terms of like vision or sort mm -hmm. of ego, but yeah. So the market changed on us. We lost product market fit without changing the product. Mm, right. And then you, you realize you're then a, a much more niche product and that becomes a very different question of how, you know, what is the market size then and, yeah. and how much can you scale? Yeah, Interesting. Exactly. All right. And then you left Etsy.com, right? They came in, they were, thought they needed a more seasoned management team, but you went with the founders and started your own company. And I know got some funding along the way there too. And I just, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Cause I think there's a lot of us who are always intrigued by that. Yeah. So it was November of 2008. So the stock mm. market was crashing. Oh, Great was, recession yes. was full on. No one was hiring. <laughs> and so I reached out to Chris and Haim, the two engineering founders. And I was like, well, do you guys want to start another company? <laughs> and they had just come back from this like burnout recovery mm. vacation to literally Disney World. And we we're like, yeah, sure, let's let's do it. And and I had this idea for creating an Etsy for bed and breakfasts, huh. which we decided to call Waffle. <laughs> and this was literally the same time that Airbnb was starting, oh. except their idea was way better. Um, <laughs> it was, we were we were literally going out to already established bed and breakfast yep. and trying to get them online and build a marketplace around it. And I think just off the backs of probably my co-founder's resumes, we got accepted into a startup incubator or sorry, a startup accelerator called Dream Adventures in Philadelphia. And we started to work on this thing. And partway through, we realized that, well, the market was pretty small. Mm. And also when we launched Waffle, we drove down to 
what was then or probably still is the largest sort of bed and breakfast conference of the year in Atlanta. And we were obviously talking to all the customers who came up to us wondering what the heck we did. And we asked them as good sort of founders and PMs will do, well, what problems do you have that, that we might be able to solve? And this is 2009 and everyone's saying, people keep telling us to be on social media, but that just seems very overwhelming. Mm. And so when we realized we needed to pivot away from bed and breakfast as an industry, we, those conversations came back and we said, oh, well, why don't we build a social media management tool for all small businesses? Mm. And that's what we did. So we built a company called Postling and you could link up all your different sort of social media accounts in one place. And a lot of people would say, oh, so is that kind of like Hootsuite or TweetDeck? And we would say, well... It is if you're a dentist or a cupcake shop owner who doesn't understand social media, doesn't have a second monitor where they're watching all this stuff all day and kind of hate it. And so we, our, our innovation was we'll send you a newsletter every morning of the things that happened on your social media accounts that you need to pay attention to mm, and nice. pull out for you the ones that came from people who had like basically large influence audiences. Oh, nice. Well, and perfect for for audience, like you said, where this is they don't have someone dedicated to this and they're not spending their time. But also like a good PM, you know, when you needed to pivot, you listen to the market. So that's great. Okay, so now that I've gone back and caught those super interesting stories, so no one's like driving around (laughs) listening, shaking their fist at me. All right, we're going to zoom back forward. We're at EXO. We've just had a great mentorship, right? Really gotten to see it. Now that your eyes have been opened to, right. to all of the, 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 not, I mean, you obviously were very successful along the way, but you've, you've got maybe a, a broader understanding. And more importantly, I think you've gotten to see someone who's done this at scale. How have you used those lessons going forward? Yeah. And just to help people understand the scale. So when I started at Amazon, it was about 10,000 employees. Now it's probably like a couple million or some bonkers number. I've obviously done the, the founder thing. General Assembly was employee 25. So I've done through that. And then Exo Group was publicly traded at the time. Mm. And so there were, you know, maybe a thousand employees. Two years into my stint there, Exo Group was acquired by a private equity firm and merged with its number one competitor, Wedding Wire. Oh, and the combined company, you know, now has probably over 2,000 employees. And in my four and a half years there, I was VP of product for a couple different divisions, marketplace, and then later registry. I spent a year as a general manager, so I left the product org and mm. moved over to the business side for a year. Oh, ran that must PNL, have been a great experience. Which was great. Exp- it, it was terrifying for me at first because I was just, you know how with, with product we set OKRs and, and like green is considered like 70% attainment uh-huh. to the objectives yeah. or whatever. Like when you own a PNL and you <laughs> promise your CFO <laughs> yeah. you're going to hit a number, like you got to hit the number. Yeah, 70% you know? of that number is not, <laughs> nope, it is not no, in the green, my friend. <laughs> It's not okay. It's not okay. Also, you know, I I suddenly, instead of having PMs or designers or engineers reporting to me, I had operations and merchandising Mm. and business development and support. And that was new. And then my last stop at the knot was as SCP of product management. So I was overseeing all almost 30 product managers Mm. at the company. And there were two CPOs at the company while I was there. The first one we mentioned was Brent. The second was the guy who's still there, Zohar Yardeni. And Zohar came from Meta and mm. brought with him OKRs in a, in a more rigorous way than we did with Brent. And so I've been able to kind of marry the two. And it's been mm-hmm. very interesting just to see them intertwine. So to answer your question, if we just do outcomes over outputs and nothing else, we can sometimes get ourselves into a state where 
we lose sight of the strategy. Mm. And instead, we'll give a squad a metric and say, your job is to make the metric go up, do whatever you want. You've got autonomy. And in that world, we've almost by accident created a silo around the squad where because they're so focused on this metric, they're going to look for incremental gains in order to just like hit their number every quarter. And we ran into this problem and our CEO came to us and said, hey guys, I feel like we're all like incrementally getting better, but Mm. like the vision for the product feels like we don't know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And what's like the big swing we're going to do. And I think that OKRs done well can really help be an antidote to that hill climbing kind of optimization problem. Mm. That's a really good point. I think it's also interesting while you're there, you mentioned that you were bought by a P firm. That is a transition mm-hmm. that I'm very familiar with. And I mm-hmm. find that the whole thing fascinating. I love talking about mergers and acquisitions. What's really interesting here is that you merged with your biggest competitor. And mm-hmm. I think that that is, I'm fascinated to think about how from a product perspective, you yeah. guys even thought about mapping products and people and processes <laughs> together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the not... The majority business model for wedding planning, which is what The Knot is and also what Wedding Wire is, comes from the vendor marketplace. So mm. this is where you would find the DJ or the florist or the photographer that you would hire. And marketplaces, as as all of you most likely know, are these like winner-take-all network effect kind of businesses. And so having two marketplaces competing with each other over the same territory, over the same customers, you know, is... It's very inefficient, I guess, for the business. Mm -hmm. And for consumers, by the way, you know, it was all free. So all of this really came down to, you know, do we want to have two sales teams, two product teams, you know, et cetera. And there was a long debate about how did we want to do this merger? Mm. One of the questions was, do we want to keep both sites up? Or should we just sort of say one brand is the winner? If we have Coke and we have Pepsi, do we keep Coke and Pepsi or do we just drop Pepsi and put everything behind Coke? And we decided to keep both because... We felt like if we could solve for any sort of SEO duplicate content issues, having twice the number of links on Google search results mm. would be better for the business. Mm. So that was that was one consideration. The second was the cultural combination between the two companies. Luckily for us, the cultures between the two companies were very similar. Nice. And so we really didn't have any issues there. Obviously, there's two executive teams and no one needs two CEOs and two heads of product and all that. So... There were some tough choices there Mm -hmm. and and half the team obviously left. And then lastly, on the tech stack architecture side, what do you do? You know, you've got two backends. Do you want to keep supporting two backends? Right. And this is anyone who is an engineer listening, your your heart is going to break. So so one company, I won't name names to protect the innocent. One company, modern tech stack, microservices, Node.js on the the backends or React on the front end. The other company, monolithic, PHP. And the question was, what do we do? And we ultimately decided, and we brought in a bunch of management, the PE firm brought in some management consultants to sort of help us with this decision. And their recommendation, which we accepted, was to keep the monolithic PHP stack and migrate away from the microservices. And the reason was that it would be easier to piecemeal transition the microservices over to the PHP, then to break out the monolith and then move Mm. that over. And so that's a little bit of what we did. And then obviously it then begs sort of like a phase two where you then take the new monolith and finally move that back over to where we once were. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was, that was rough. Give them a moment of silence for that. 
Okay. So even before you leave the nod, right? So you've mm-hmm. got a ton of experience. You've had two different CPOs come in with different backgrounds. You've brought all your startup background. You have your understanding because you've been an engineer. You spent some time, which I think is amazing as a GM there, right? So you've got mm-hmm. a wider business sense. Like obviously you had a business understanding, but it's different when it's like, and now it's yours. And mm-hmm. then you move to be the SVP and you oversee a team of 30 mm-hmm. product managers. How did you like, what are some of the things you're like, okay, I have a team of 30. What are some of the things you put in place that you think really helped that team succeed? What do you wish you could have done as well that you didn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to set the stage, I want to give credit to what was already in place. Fair. Um, because there was a scratch. lot, there was a lot that was already really working well. The team, product team at the Nod is excellent. So the team already was thinking in a very hypothesis-based kind of way. So one example of this. We don't have feature roadmaps. So instead, we have we obviously have quarterly OKRs. And so there are metrics that the team is signing up to hit. And they have a strategy of how they want to go about trying to hit those metrics. We have a prioritized backlog of hypotheses that we're going to go after that we think enough of them are, we think enough of those hypotheses are going to be validated. And through that execution, we'll hit the objectives. And so it's required getting our stakeholders and sort of the broader leadership team on board with the idea that they don't exactly know what features are coming. Hmm. They just know that we're going to do something in the direction of search or Hmm. of social or of improving onboarding or whatever it might be. And we're going to give ourselves, you know, we think it'll take about maybe eight weeks from discovery to execution and iteration to get there, but we can't promise you exactly what it is or when it is. This is obviously possible in because we're in a consumer product environment yep, and with yep. enterprise, it's like kind of a different beast, but it worked for us. The second was when it came to product briefs. So we didn't do PRDs. There aren't these like long, like, you know, mm-hmm. here's all the requirements, but the product managers were expected to write documents that lay out Here's the hypothesis. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. The reasons to believe. The risks that we see that we want to de-risk. How we want to go about de-risking it. And and that is a document that is constantly being updated. And it's helping the team get aligned on why we're doing what we're doing. But also giving the team enough context that they can contribute to the solutioning on their own. And then in terms of my role, a lot of it was around either strategy alignment, getting people resources, or coaching. Mm, and yeah. in terms of the strategy alignment, again, like, you know, there's this, I think, natural tendency for teams to forget that other teams exist and just focus on what they can control. Yep. Yep. And so as you sort of move up the leadership hierarchy in an organization, I think it's more and more important for at, a, at the director level, VP level, CPO, whoever it is to be thinking, well, are there big levers that we can pull if we could sort of get a bunch of different teams to all work together. And would that be a bigger win for us than everyone just sort of like making their own little corner of the world a little bit more tidy? Nice. Nice. All right. So then you leave the knot. What what comes next, David? Yeah. So I got I got contacted by a recruiter to be CPO at a a Series C health tech company. Mm. And so Bowie Health. And so they were about a hundred employees. They had raised a bunch of money, maybe like 80 million or something like that. And they had built an AI chatbot that you could talk to as if they were a doctor. <laughs> and so you would describe to it your symptoms. And then using its AI, it would figure out what is the most 
helpful question to ask you next in order to further sort of whittle down all of the possible things that mm. could explain your symptoms to what you might have. And then based on that, it would give you sort of uh, what, what they call differential diagnosis, which is like the top three most likely diagnoses that explain your symptoms. And they had started, it was an eight-year-old company. They had started as an enterprise SaaS company where they're selling to, they're selling this chatbot. Hmm. And it wasn't working that well. They hadn't found product market fit. And so they came to me and said, okay, we have this idea, which is, could we, once people use the, the chatbot to figure out they might have strep throat or diabetes, whatever it is, could we build a marketplace of treatment providers around that hmm. so that they could then take the next step of finding someone who can help them get better? And so we ended up going into this, we built this marketplace and it would show you the full range of things from things you can buy at like Amazon over the counter to primary care, specialty care, all the way to wellness, like chiropractor, acupuncture, nutrition coach. It was starting to work. And then the funding environment changed a year ago, yes, as many yes, of us remember. And many of us, myself included, were laid off. And the company is still going as a 12 person concern. Yeah. And I'm rooting for them because I, I think the idea is has legs. And yeah. I, I felt like we could see product market fit coming. Yeah, you, you can tell in, I think, a lot of careers. I think it's something for everyone to remember that there are pivots when the economy changes. And it those pivots can be really hard on a personal level and an emotional level and on for the companies. But also to remember that these happen and it's not you. And there are things on the other side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're not tough. So what's next? What do you want to do next? Yeah. So this year I've been doing some, some startup consulting. I've been working with a startup as sort of like an employee number one, first product hire. I think I've learned through that experience that that role actually isn't really suited for me mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, just the consultant lifestyle is a this sort of like feast or famine mm -hmm. kind of a lifestyle that I think constitutionally is just like not for me. Some people just love it, but I want to know that my paycheck is coming next month. <laughs> it, um, is, it is a nice feeling, right? The concern. Yeah, yeah. So, but it was good to try that out. And then secondly, I think that for where I am in my career and also just sort of like, you know, taking care of my family and lifestyle, I think being a founding, a co-founder or like PM number one is, I think it's behind me. Yeah. I'm realizing that. Yeah. And I think that like, so what's, what's right for me is I'm, out like interviewing like everyone else is at sort of CPO roles where, you know, I can be leading a team of anywhere between probably like five and 30 PMs. Mm -hmm. And depending on if the company is more like series A slash series B looking to, I guess, no longer have the founder be the head of product, but yep. they need someone who can upscale the team, bring in some actual like good practice, or they're sort of more like a thousand person company and looking for some stronger executive leadership. Well, and I think we see this a lot, right? With founders that need to make that, but founders are almost always the first product person, not necessarily by title, but by function, right? By active, they had an idea. They had an idea because they saw a problem. Often they had the problem, right? And that I think it is a necessary, but I think it's also an art form to be able to work with founders to make that transition. They have to know it's time, but you also need someone who has a really good understanding of both product and the business that they can feel very comfortable with because it, it is hard. I mean, right. There is, you know, when you're on the other side, it feels very like cheese founder, you've got to like, let go a little bit, mm -hmm. but you get it. It's also hard for them. So it is, it is a good balancing act of which you have lots of experience that, that can help you through for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we walked through your history, right. From mm -hmm. all different kinds of things. 
let's talk just a little bit about if you knew then what you knew now, right? Some of those like things that you wished you understood earlier in your career or things that you're like, I would tell myself not to do X. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit that. Yeah. Wow. So I think one of my biggest regrets is the lesson I learned at General Assembly. So I mentioned earlier how at GA, I felt like the company outgrew me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so to set the stage, at the time that I got there, the General Assembly, so General Assembly is a company where adults who are looking to career change into like more tech industry roles, like design, engineering, product management, data science can learn those foundational skills. And at the time, it was a WordPress site that sold $1,500 tickets on Eventbrite. Mm-hmm. And like that, that was the company. And so when I took over, there was so much to build that was obvious. Mm. We need a website that can take that can take in leads, you know, because most people want to talk to someone before yep. they plop thousands of dollars. We need a, a student sort of CRM on the back end, something that students can interact with to like upload their homework or whatever it is. So there was so much that was obvious that just being in that like output, output, output mindset while furiously hiring. And the team ended up being about sort of 30 some people by the time I left. And I wish I had the realization then that at some point that was going to flip. And we would move from a roadmap that is based on almost like survival to a roadmap that was based on scaling. Mm. And Mm -hmm. a scaling roadmap is filled with strategic choices. Right? We could do we could focus more on A or we could focus more on B. And all of those choices were not decisions that I should be making in my own brain, talking mm-hmm. to no one. Yeah. And, right? Like I have peers on the executive team. I have a CEO who probably has opinions. Also, maybe it's not even my call. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wish that I had just been more collaborative, I would admit, with my peers on the exec team around strategy. I think that's good advice for everyone listening to. I think we tend to be a lot of like, we like to get things done and type A and sometimes collaboration can feel like weakness or what if they don't see it. But I think we're missing a lot when we do that. We're missing a lot of important inputs, but we're also making it really hard when we do make choices for those to be seen and adopted or bought into because we've come like a steamroll. But it's I do think I I see that a lot with product managers as they're expanding. They're really good individual contributors. And then there's this part where it feels like it's hard to let people in. And I think it's true. So that's true for all of us. I I think think that there used to be a phrase that people would say a lot. You don't hear it so much anymore. We're like the the PM is the CEO of their product. Mm -hmm. And it's just baloney. You know, it's like you're not like the authoritarian dictator of of your product. No, You're maybe a shepherd or an advisor or Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's a good one. Anything else? Let me see. So I've often asked myself, like, should I have stayed at Amazon? Mm. You know, I was only there nine months. I knew basically nothing. And I don't regret it. Even though, like, I was like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And well, I got fired in six months um, after (laughs) moving across country. Right. Yeah. You know, and then, and then, and then, like, you know, the greatest recession since the Great Depression happened. And I, I don't regret it. So I would just encourage anyone listening, like, if you're the type of person who's comfortable jumping into the deep end and figuring it out, do it. And, you know, at the same time, like eight years later, I said, okay, I have run out of ways I can learn by jumping in the deep end and trying not to drown. So let me join a company where I can learn from someone better. So I feel like I got both. Yeah. uh, And both are really valuable. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think both are makeup or powerful. Okay, my last question, Davey. We talked about a ton of different things. If you were going to have people listening do two things differently tomorrow, based on Mm -hmm. what we talked about today, what would you have them do? So I think the first would be, so I'm a huge stickler for strategy. And I think most people are a little bit confused about what strategy actually means. Mm. And one of my mentors defined it as strategy is choosing. Mm. And so if you're describing your strategy in a way that is not in the form of a choice, Mm. try to rephrase it so that it is, because that forces you to weigh the other options and Mm -hmm. to understand what you're you're trying to do. And also I think forces you to know what you're saying no to, right? Yes. It's the line where that's what I want you to do. And I want you to tell me what you're going to do, but I want you to know what you're not doing. And I think thinking about it that way, putting it as choosing is a really smart way because that means I am intentionally not doing something. That's right. That's exactly right. And then I would say the second is, I think that there's, especially for companies that are a little bit more output focused, Mm. there's so much pressure on velocity and execution. And in my opinion, the biggest waste of company resources is not in how you go about doing what you're doing, but the fact that you started it at all, Mm. because we ended up just being wrong. Mm. And so I would encourage people to take the thing that they're working on now and really try to break out the different hypotheses. So for example, MVP is a term that I actually really dislike Mm. because MVP, I think, has lost its original meaning and has turned into just people saying V1. It's just all the things that we want that survived the moment when we needed to cut scope. And there's no actual thought into what are the things that we're trying to prove through building what we're building. And so at the knot, we ended up adopting this phrase called minimum viable experiments. Mm. And the idea was of all the different things that need to be true in order for our vision to be true, let's try to describe each one of those Mm. things and then rank them in order of like, how screwed are we if one of these assumptions proves false? Yes. You know, and then let's design experiments that are custom made to answer those questions for us. Nice. And sometimes the only way to do that is build the whole MVP and and ship it. But turns out a lot of times, you know, there there's other tools that are faster and cheaper to give us the same yeah. answers. Other way. Awesome. David, I really appreciate you coming on, telling us your story, mm-hmm. sharing your experiences and your insights. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.